For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. Love that endures. This is part one, Romans chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. So we're back in Romans chapter 12 this morning, where Paul now in Romans chapter 12 is is, is exhorting us with respect to our conduct in the Lord's church. These are exhortations with respect to our conduct in his body. When Paul thinks of the church, when Paul communicates to the church, Paul is thinking of and Paul is speaking to a unique and set apart people of God. Right, a set-apart group of people. They are elect in eternity, predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. They are effectually called by God in time. They are raised from death to new life. They are indwelt by the spirit of God, forgiven of all their sin, credited, imputed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are justified in the sight of God, reconciled to himself, adopted as sons in his own household. They are made partakers of the inheritance. They are placed in union with Jesus Christ through faith, and they are placed in communion with one another in love. That is the church. That defines the church. In the words of Hebrews chapter 12, we are, the church is the general assembly and church of the firstborn whose names are registered in heaven. We are those who have been delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of the son of his love. Those whom the apostle says have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The church is made up of those who are in covenant with God through the shed blood of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's for that reason that the church then is described as his own body. God describes the church, the Lord describes the church as his own body. And we are members of that body. We are, as it were, of his flesh and of his bones. He uses that language to describe us in the New Testament. Paul says in verse five, so we then being many are one body in Christ and individually then members of one another. So when Paul speaks of the church then, Paul has in mind this unique group that is like an extended family, a unified family. So he uses terms then that refer to brotherly affection, for example, familial affection, like the affection between a mother and her child, so to speak, a familial bond. But it's a family bound by something that is far greater than the blood of our ancestors. It's not just the blood of our physical family that binds us, so to speak. We are bound by something much greater. It's not merely the blood of your mother and father that binds you, so to speak. The Jews had the blood of Abraham coursing through their veins and could claim no right, no entitlement to this heritage. Paul speaks of an extended family here joined together in one body, in one spirit, just as we are called in one hope of our calling and that body bound together by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We are one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is above all and through all and in you all. We are then, in the the mind of Paul, in the teaching of the New Testament, in our own understanding, brothers and sisters, we are an extended family, defined not by the blood of our ancestors, but defined by the shed blood of our Savior. And just as our union with him is so intimate as to be pictured in the New Testament in the one flesh relationship between a husband and his wife, The church then, as the chaste and unblemished bride of Christ, is to exemplify in her communion together, in in her fellowship together, a corresponding intimacy. We're to reflect that intimacy in our own communion together as the church. As the church, we are to be bound to one another in intimate fellowship. We are to demonstrate Christ-like love and concern for one another. We're to treat one another like brothers and sisters. We're to treat one another like family. We are to treat one another with a love that displays the love that Jesus Christ has shed abroad in our hearts. We're to love one another as Christ has loved us. Very seldom, very seldom do we find that kind of love today. Very, very rare 
to see that kind of love in marriages today. Exceedingly rare to find that kind of love, that Christ-like kind of love in families today. And very sadly, tragically, it is very rare, very seldom that we find that kind of love in the professing church today. And if it's not visible, if it's not visible in the professing church, then where are you going to see it? You're not going to see it anywhere if it's not visible in the Lord's church. So as much as this kind of love is critical to our fellowship, as much as this kind of love is critical to our preservation, to our prosperity, to our peace, this kind of love is critical to our witness. John chapter 13, the Lord says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This kind of love, this love that Paul is defining here in Romans chapter 12 becomes critical to our fellowship as a church. It becomes critical to our identity as the church. It's very important. Now, inasmuch as Paul employs that metaphor of the body to communicate that we being many are one body with Christ, Paul also employs that metaphor of the body to describe the way in which each one of us uniquely gifted to function we are uniquely gifted to function in a way that contributes to the health and to the growth of the whole. So that metaphor of the body used to apply to us individually as we use our gifts in the church to edify the whole. We are gifted by God to play a role in the growth and in the health of the body. We have an invaluable role to play given to us by God. Those gifts differ according to the grace of God. It's God who has given to each one a measure of faith for the exercise of our gifts in his body. So then, knowing that God has given that to us by his grace, each one of us should exercise our gifts then and labor for the benefit of the body. We are to serve one another with the gifts that God has given us. Paul said, as he said, see to it that that grace, his grace toward you, is not in vain. Labor abundantly with it. Paul says, however, as you labor with those gifts, do so in humility. Do so in humility. Great harm has come upon the church often because of what men and women think of themselves. If you are a hand, then glorify God as a hand rather than coveting the role of an eye or usurping the role of our head, right? Don't covet a position that you are not entitled to, so to speak, by God. Paul warns us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We are to think soberly, Paul says, realistically, accurately, humbly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Finally, our love for one another in the body of Christ must be free, free from the stain and stench of hypocrisy. It must be genuine. It must be sincere. There's little that's more destructive in the church than hypocrisy. There's little that is more destructive in a marriage than hypocrisy. There's little that's more destructive in a family than hypocrisy. In order for our love to be genuine, In order for our love to be sincere, it must conform to his law. It must abhor that which is evil and cling to that which is good. It must be warm and affectionate. It must delight in its object like that brotherly affection or that affection of a mother for her child, right? It should be natural in that sense. Genuine love, in the words of Paul from Romans 12, genuine love should rush to defer. It should rush to to esteem others. It should rush to give preference to others. It should rush to honor, rush to edify, rush to build up, rather than rush to judge, rush to criticize, rush to tear down, or rush to revile. Romans 13, verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Our love for one another, brothers and sisters, should not be lazy should not be indifferent, should not be negligent, but fervent, earnest, and ardent. We don't merely serve one another. Paul says we serve the Lord Christ. We should love like it. Paul has thought to distinguish biblical love in terms of its sincerity. And this is how sincere love thinks and acts. This is how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. This is a high calling, amen? It's a high calling and we have to pursue this. This this kind of love takes work. It takes effort. We can't just presume to coast along and think that this is going to happen organically. Paul is charging us to labor for this kind of love. Now that brings us then to verse 12. 
In verse 12, Paul is continuing the very same line of thought. We're talking about sincere love, a love that is without hypocrisy. And Paul continues to expand now this theme of genuine Christian love. And he now describes in verse 12, sincere love as a love that endures. It's a love that persists. It's a love that lasts. Love that is free from the stain of hypocrisy is a love, verse 12, that rejoices in hope. We're going to talk about what that means in a moment. A love that is patient in tribulation and a love that continues steadfastly in prayer. So, in light of those three terms, verse 12, sincere love is a love that endures. It, it endures, not by gritting your teeth and trudging through present circumstances, your eyes in the dirt, so to speak, but rejoicing in future certainties, rejoicing in hope, your eyes set on the horizon. Sincere love endures not by faltering and giving up in the face of tribulation or in the face of adversity. Sincere love endures not by compromising in the face of adversity or sinning in the face of adversity, but sincere love endures by pressing forward, by remaining steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, always abounding in the face of adversity. Sincere love endures not by pressing forward in our own wisdom or in our own strength, but sincere love endures by depending upon the Lord, by trusting in the Lord with all your heart, leaning not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledging him, knowing that he will be the one who directs your paths. It's not going to be by your might. It's not going to be by your power. God says it is going to be by my spirit. So we should trust in him. Sincere love then is a love that endures. It endures in joy. It endures in patience and humility. It endures in strength. It endures in persistence. It endures in not being negligent in the work. It, it endures in dependence upon God steadfastly in prayer. Sincere love is a love that endures. The first, Sincere love that endures by rejoicing in hope. In our text, verse 12, sincere love endures by rejoicing in hope. That's an interesting thought because joy is typically something that we think of as, as something we personally experience. But in light of the mercies of God, in light of the blessings that have been lavished on you in the gospel, if you believe that you have been forgiven of your sin by the blood, by the substitution of the Lord Jesus Christ, then based upon those blessings given to you, you should, of all people, be most joyful. The reasonable, rational response of the genuine Christian who is in possession of those blessings should be continuous rejoicing. And we are very often, very easily tempted to be discouraged and depressed. We're often tempted to be discouraged. And we have to remind ourselves that we're not entitled to feel that way. We're not entitled to feel that way. Paul sat chained up in a prison cell with no expectation of ever getting out of that cell except by way of his own execution. And while chained there, awaiting his own execution, Paul wrote, I say rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He wrote those words, chained up in prison, expecting to die. Jesus Christ was mocked, shamed, spit upon, scourged, beaten, crucified. And yet for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. It's in the words of Hebrews chapter 12. That's the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him, his love for you and I endured the shame of the cross. We are to consider him, lest we become weary and discouraged in our own souls. But the rejoicing that Paul has in mind here in verse 12 is not merely a joy that has its roots in this present evil age or has its roots in our present circumstances, the joy that Paul has in mind in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, is a joy that is grounded in future promises. It's grounded in future fulfillments. Paul says to rejoice in hope. Those future realities we are to lay hold of by hope. Hope, you could say, is faith in the Lord for the future. It's faith in the Lord for the fulfillment of his promises. Faith in the Lord for future fulfillments. Our hope then in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, our hope is the cause or the ground of our joy. And with that hope set before us, 
with that joy set before us, with Paul, we should be able to rejoice in whatever circumstances befall us. Whatever circumstances we face, even as James says, counting it all joy when we fall into various trials. When we fall into adversity, when we fall into difficulty, we should be able to rejoice. Here, the reason that that's the case, Paul appeals to joy in future hope. Paul appeals to a joy that finds its source in our hope for the future. Faith in the Lord for future blessings. If you think about it that way, if you know, if you know, if you're assured of certain blessing, great blessing, tremendous blessing, then you are willing and able to endure a little difficulty along the way to get there. If you know that that day is coming, the more persuaded that you are that that day is a reality, the more that you're faithfully able to endure some difficulty along the way, knowing that that day is coming, right? That's the concept that Paul has in mind here in Romans chapter 12. We are to rejoice in hope, in hope of God's future fulfillments, in hope of promised blessings. In Psalm 47, verse one, the psalmist has in mind this hope. He says, oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with a voice of triumph for the Lord most high is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. Now, do you believe that? You believe that? We should clap our hands with joy. Why? For he will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. That's a future promise. All enemies made our footstool, right? Verse four, he will choose our inheritance for us. He's going to give it to us. The excellence of Jacob whom he loves. That's a future promise. Where is the hope of the people? The hope of the people is in the future promises of God that he will fulfill because he is faithful to his words. And what do they do in light of that future hope? They clap their hands with joy. Commenting on this text, Calvin said, the Holy Spirit has exhorted the faithful to continue clapping their hands for joy until the return of our promised Redeemer. Clapping our hands with joy until he comes back. Clapping our hands with joy through all of our difficulties. Amen? Because he's going to return. And we are inheritors with the saints in the light. No matter the afflictions we face, the reasonable response, the rational response of the one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has a genuine and saving faith, the rational response of that one is joy in the face of difficulty, is rejoicing. We are to rejoice in hope. Now this thought, rejoicing in hope, raises an interesting interpretive question about our text today. Think with me. These are not isolated exhortations. These are related exhortations. And here, they're related to endurance in verse 12, but they're all related. These exhortations are all related in our text to Paul's exhortation to a sincere love, to love without hypocrisy. Paul is focusing on the nature and on the activity of a sincere love. And Paul says in verse 12 that a sincere love, a sincere love for one another A sincere love rejoices in hope. Remember our description of love. Love is the heart focused upon another with affectionate warmth and delight such that love thinks, speaks, and acts with enduring commitment and self-sacrificing devotion to his biblical and spiritual good. Think with me about that definition. Love is the heart focused upon another with affectionate warmth, affectionate delight, such that love thinks, speaks, and acts with enduring, steadfast commitment and self-sacrificing devotion to his biblical and spiritual good. So joy is a fruit of the Spirit in me. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is something that I experience. Joy is something that you experience, right? It's a fruit of the Spirit in you if you're a Christian. So how is my joy... How is your joy connected to a sincere love for others? That's the question we need to answer, right? More specifically, how does that sincere love for others endure by rejoicing in hope? As we consider those questions, how is my joy connected to a sincere love for others? I think the answer is to be found in a parallel text on love. And that text is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. I think the answers are found here. 
particularly in verse seven, but I wanna read from verse one for context. Paul says, speaking of love, this is a classical text, the locus classicus on love. And Paul speaks on love beginning in verse one. Though I speak with the tongues of men, speak with the tongues of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. That's not an apologetic for tongues today. Uh, that is what we call a hyperbole. I could speak with the tongues of angels, but if I don't have love, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's worthless. It's profitless. It doesn't mean anything, right? It's hyperbole. Paul says in verse two, using the same literary device, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, if I have all knowledge, is Paul speaking figuratively? Yes. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing, Paul says. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to the stake to be burned, but have not love, it all profits me nothing. Verse four, love, this is how it acts. Love suffers long and is kind. Hatred does not suffer long, nor is it kind. You see, love does not envy. Hatred is marked or characterized by envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Contempt will parade itself. Love, verse five, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked. Love thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rather love rejoices in the truth. Verse seven, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Love endures. Now keep your thoughts, keep your eyes on verse seven. The answer to our interpretive question, what does love have to do with sincere love for others? Or what is joy? What does our joy have to do with sincere love for others? The answer to that interpretive question is to be found in verse seven. A sincere love, here's how it acts. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This kind of love never fails. I want you to notice with me the couplets in verse seven. This was a very common literary structure in the first century called a chiasm. The first statement and the last statement form a couplet. Bears all things, and endures all things are roughly synonymous. Do you see that? That's a couplet. The two interior statements also form a couplet. Believes all things and hopes all things are roughly synonymous. Those two couplets form a chiasm. Now let's consider that interior couplet first. Believes all things and hopes all things. Those statements, believes all things and hopes all things, those statements do not imply that you should believe everything you hear. It's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying, believe everything you hear. The enemy, brothers and sisters, has packed the professing church with liars. The enemy has packed the professing church with tares. Liars, slanderers, and gossips abound. You're not to believe everything you hear. But Paul here is implying, he's not implying that you should believe everything you hear, but he is implying, however, that a sincere love disposes you to believe the best about your brother. He is implying or suggesting that. Apart from clear, definable, objective evidence to the contrary, sincere love refuses to believe slander, refuses to believe gossip, refuses to impugn another brother's character, or refuses to impugn another brother's motives. It refuses to entertain slander or gossip or malice. A love that is free from the stain or stench of hypocrisy is a love that refuses to simply receive or believe a bad report. Certainly refuses to repeat a bad report, knowing, knowing what a great forest a little fire kindles. That love is going to act for the benefit of his brother. That, lo that love, that kind of love is going to give the benefit of the doubt to his brother. It's believing all things in this way, in being disposed to believing the best about your brother, that a sincere love hopes all things. You see? A sincere love believes all things and hopes all things. How? By giving the benefit of the doubt to a brother or a sister. By 
hoping in their good name and their good character. That kind of hope isn't grounded in our circumstances. We can't place that kind of hope in our brother. That kind of hope springs from the grace that is to be found in God alone. Our hope ultimately is founded in the grace of God. The grace of God can bring about that kind of hope. He is the one who searches the heart. He is the one who is sovereign over our circumstances. He's the one who is sovereign over the heart of our brother. He is the one who restores. And with him, there's always cause for hope. Amen? So we can hope in this way. We can believe all things in this way. We can hope all things in this way. Sin may carry the day, but a sincere love clings in hope to the triumph of grace. Now notice the other couplet then in verse seven. A sincere love that hopes all things in this way and believes all things in this way is a love that bears all things then and endures all things. This love is characterized in this way. The Greek word stego, the verb translated bears in verse seven, is a word that literally means to pass it over in silence. That word means to pass it over. A love that bears all things, passes it over in silence. Passes over what? Passes over an offense. It covers that thing with a cloak of confidentiality. The BDAG says, this lexicon, it says that it's a love that throws a cloak of silence over what may be displeasing in another person. That's what a sincere love does. A sincere love casts a cloak of confidentiality or a cloak of silence over what may be displeasing in another person. Paul is saying that a sincere love, a love that believes all things, a love that hopes all things, in the words of Romans chapter 12, verse 12, a love that rejoices in hope, that is a love that is willing to pass over an offense. That is a loving, that is a love that is willing to bear that offense in silence. It's a joyless, so-called hypocritical love that focuses on or digs up or repeats an offense. It's a, it's a, a joyless, so-called hypocritical love that ignores the plank in your own eye because you're too preoccupied playing with a speck in your brother's eye. Contrary to the kind of loveless and heartless pride and self-righteousness that desires to announce or even fabricate offense, Peter says that a sincere love covers a multitude of sins. This is what Peter means by that statement. Love covers a multitude of sins in what way? A love is willing to pass over an offense with a cloak of silence, to pass over it in silence. It conceals them, the word means there, that it conceals them under a hut, as it were. Puts a lid on them. Listen to this from Solomon. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Do you want to know where, where strife comes from? You're sitting around. Where'd all this strife come from? Where's, where's, this conf- where's this conflict coming from? Solomon says hatred, contempt. Love covers all sins. It puts them under a hut, as it were. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 9. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. To combine those two statements, he who repeats a matter hates. Now that from Solomon does not negate the responsibility of Christian to deal biblically with sin or to deal with sin according to biblical wisdom. But that's what Solomon is asking for. That's what Solomon is charging us with. That's what Paul is charging us with. We are to deal with sin biblically. And if we deal with sin biblically, we're dealing with sin in love. We're dealing with sin with biblical wisdom. A sincere love will deal biblically. A sincere love is not going to subvert the scriptures. It's not going to sidestep the scriptures or compromise with the Bible. A sincere love is not going to do that. A love that is free from the stain of hypocrisy is going to obey God's word. You're not going to cover the sin with a cloak of disobedience. You're not going to cover the sin, as it were, with a hut of neglect. That wouldn't be loving. It wouldn't be loving to deal with sin in that way. You're going to deal with the sin. However, when sincere love is absent, the abscess that is left behind is often filled with a contagion that will stir up strife and separate friends. 
when sincere love, that, that love without hypocrisy, when that sincere love in your heart for another person, for your brother, for your sister in the Lord's body, when that for your wife, for someone in your family, right? When that sincere love for another is absence, is absent, when it's not there, and you don't always perceive that yourself. You can't always tell when it's absent. You may, you may say to yourself, oh, I love him. I love her. I love them. When you don't love them and you don't even see it yourself. Here's how you know. <laughs> when that sincere love, when that true love, that genuine love is absent from your heart, the abscess that is left behind is often filled with something that creates strife. It's filled with something that separates friends. It's filled with something that undermines the relationship. It acts in ways that are not loving. It says things that are unloving. It does things that are unloving. And the fruit of that lack of love, the fruit of that hate, the fruit of that contempt is to create strife, create contention, broil up a good old-fashioned argument, right? And to separate friends, to destroy the relationship. That's ultimately what, what happens. A love that rejoices in hope, Romans chapter 12, verse 12, is a love that chooses to believe the best about his brother, obeys the Bible, and trusts the Lord. That's what that love does. Now remember, remember, rejoicing in hope characterized the love that the Lord Jesus Christ had for us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse two, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, endured such hostility against himself at the hands of sinners. He endured that. He didn't merely or only cover it with a cloak of silence. He paid for it with his own blood. He loved his own who were in the world, John 13, 1. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. And then how do we treat him? How do we treat one another in the Lord's body? We, in our own self-righteousness, in our own loveless faithlessness, we treat one another with contempt. We cause strife and contention. We separate the best of friends. How was it that he endured in love? Hebrews 12, 2 says he rejoiced in hope for the joy that was set before him. Most of the sin that destroys a relationship is the sin that results from a personal offense. I'll repeat that, and I want you to think about it with me. Most of the sin that destroys a relationship is the sin that is associated with or the sin that results from a personal offense. It's not generally because someone came up and literally stabbed you in the back. <laughs> it's the figurative stabbing in the back that destroys many a relationship. Most of the sin that destroys a relationship is the sin, most of the quote-unquote sin that destroys a relationship is the quote-unquote sin that results in personal offense. I put sin in quotes there to suggest that the sin may be real or it may only be perceived. It may be actual sin that results in a personal offense or... It may be something you merely perceive as sin because you don't like it. You characterize it as sin because you don't like it. Or you don't agree with it. It offends you. You treat it as sin. You characterize it as sin because it offends you. You're offended. Either way, real or perceived, it results in personal offense or personal aggravation. One commentator said that this quote-unquote sin is often the result of carelessness rather than malice. They are common infirmities. This kind of sin, they are common infirmities that do not warrant a breach in the relationship. In our relationships, we commonly commit as many of these offenses as we endure at the hands of others. We're often committing sin in the same way that now we're offended when somebody else commits that same sin against us. How many times, you, you attest, you tell me if this is not true, you in the room who are married. <laughs> often marriage becomes a, uh, little testing ground for these, kind of, these kinds of things. You've had an argument. There's strife and contention in the relationship. And it's not long after that you can't even remember what you were fighting about. 
you can't even remember why you're offended, but you're offended. Most of the quote-unquote sin that damages our relationships is a quote-unquote sin that is, results in a personal offense. It's grounded in a personal offense. It may be real, or it may just be perceived. Either way, you're offended, and now you're arguing, creating strife and separating friends. James says, this is true, for in many things we all offend. For in many things we all offend. We are just as prone to commit these offenses as we are to endure them. And yet, it's in the very context of that personal offense that we, in our response to it, undermine the relationship by sinning against our brother with a hypocritical love. It's, listen, it's in the very context of that personal offense, whether the sin is real or only perceived, it's in the very context of that personal offense that we must love one another with a sincere love. You want to test your sincere love for another brother, another person? You want to test your sincere love for your husband, for your wife? Then love them this way in the midst of that conflict. Love them this way when you're offended. If your love is sincere, it's going to endure this offense. Do you see? This is how rejoicing in hope is connected to sincere love for the brothers and sisters. It endures all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. We must deal with the sin. We must deal with the offense biblically. And one of the ways that we deal with it biblically is by rejoicing in hope. It's when we are offended that we ourselves are tempted to sin in ways that stir up strife, separate friends, and destroy relationships. A brother offended is harder to win than a fortified city. So it's when we are offended that we are most tempted to undermine the relationships that matter most to us or should matter most to us in this world. The relationships of our family in the church. We are blood bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to learn to deal with our offenses, deal with our disagreements. It's in the context of that offense that we are most prone or most tempted to sin against our brother. And it's in the context of that offense that we should most be careful to love our brother or sister through it. Cover it with a hut. To pass over it in silence if need be. But to deal with it biblically in sincere love. It's a sincere love that will cover the matter. Or it's a sincere love that will send you to the one who has offended you to resolve that matter quickly. And completely, where that love fails, it destroys relationships. Where that love fails, you have a husband and a wife living as strangers under the same roof, caring nothing for one another, right? You have uh, a couple sitting across from you in in counseling that are like at one another. (laughs) Rather than forgiving one another, they've got their hands around each other's throats. And their husband and wife saying, I love you. It's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. Where that lie, where sincere love fails, it destroys relationships. Where pride holds on to the offense, where self-righteousness holds on to the offense, rather than loving a brother, loving a sister through that offense, that sin will destroy your relationships. It's going to destroy our relationships in the church. It will destroy the church. It'll destroy the church. You're either gonna you're either gonna go to church and it's gonna be this hypocritical, superficial show. You're gonna show up at church. Ah, oh, good morning, brother. Good morning, sister. I love you. I love you. And you're gonna go back to home. You're gonna live your life, you know, for yourself with no regard for those people at all during the week. You're just showing up to a club on Sunday. Sincere love cannot act that way. Sincere love has to deal biblically. Sincere love is going to genuinely love a brother or sister, and it's going to genuinely love them through offense. It's devastating. It's devastating when our professed love no longer rejoices in hope. It's either going to be superficial or if you don't handle it biblically in the church, it's going to destroy those very real relationships in the church. We're commanded to love one another as family, those who are members of one another in the body of Christ. If that kind of sincere love fails, then it is a professed love in name only. It's a professed love in name only that no longer bears all things, no longer believes all things, no longer hopes all things, no longer endures all things. It won't, do, it won't endure anything. <laughs> Instead of 
bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. Instead, it bears nothing. It becomes offended with all things. Good morning. Why did you say good morning to me like that? <laughs> There's a problem, right? <laughs> you walk through the doors of the church and, and someone just catches a glimpse of you and heads the other direction. Something's amiss. <laughs> it, it bears nothing. Instead of bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things, it believes nothing and thinks evil of his brother. It hopes nothing. It closes the book on him, right? Rushes to judgment, finalizes that deal. You can do nothing right in his sight and the relationship is ruined. Closes the book. It doesn't hope all things. It closes the book. It endures nothing. It will drop an invested relationship like a bad habit. We've spent years together. It doesn't matter because I'm offended, you see? If you find that love, that kind of so-called love, that hypocritical love in your own heart, which we all do at times, deal with that thing biblically. Confess that, acknowledge it. Don't let that take root in your heart. Dig it out by the roots. Confess that to your wife, husbands, if you've been treating your wife in that way. Confess that hypocritical love wives to your husbands if you've been treating your husband in that way. Rather than focused upon a glorious horizon that is filled with a weight of glory that eclipses the light and momentary affliction of this present age, instead of focused upon that glorious horizon, we become focused on the light and momentary affliction. We have our eyes in the dirt, so to speak. And in that condition, verse 12, we do not rejoice in hope. We are not rejoicing in hope. We are not therefore patient in tribulation and we do not continue steadfastly in our dependence upon God in prayer. And we fail to love one another as we should. We're not going to endure them. We're not going to be patient with them. We're not going to be compassionate toward them. Instead, we become gripers and complainers and disputers. Joyless and entitled and offended hypocrites. Short-sighted in the words of Peter, even to blindness, having forgotten, we've been cleansed from our old sins. Tragically, this happens far too often in the Lord's church, in the professing church. We've experienced the effects of this kind of joyless, impatient, so-called love ourselves, haven't we? And once someone's personal offense is allowed to fester, their sight focused on their circumstances rather than the joy that is set before them, when that happens, bitterness takes root. And the vile weed that springs up from that root may defile many, stirring up strife, separating friends. That imagery is drawn from Hebrews chapter 12. Turn there with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hang in there with me. Hebrews chapter 12. It's where Paul uses that imagery of the root that defiles. He says there in verse 12, uh, beginning in verse 12, Therefore, Paul says, strengthen the hands which hang down. Strengthen the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. Pursue peace with all people in love, right? And holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled. That text is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 29 where in Deuteronomy 29, gall and wormwood are used to picture the sin of bitterness. Gall was a poisonous weed that produced a toxic venom. Wormwood Wormwood was an herb that tasted like misery. <laughs> if you were to eat wormwood, it just tasted like misery. <laughs> tasted like despair. Biblically, both gall and wormwood became pictures of judgment and death. It's the way the Bible uses those terms. The natural principle is used to convey a spiritual reality. Think with me. A root or a bulb, a root of bitterness, a root of gall or wormwood, so to speak, a root or a bulb may lie concealed under the soil for a long time. It's buried there. You cover it up. No one sees it. It goes unseen, unseen for a long period of time. But eventually, eventually, when the conditions are just right, 
The heat has risen to a certain degree. There's moisture in the, in the soil. When the conditions are just right for bringing it up, the root reveals itself for what it is by nature and produces fruit that bears witness to the root that it is a root of gall and wormwood and misery. Just as bulbs lie concealed in the dirt, the root of bitterness lies concealed in an evil heart of unbelief. It lies there concealed in the heart. Just as bulbs spring up when the conditions are just right, that root of bitterness lies in wait, invisible to most everyone, likely even invisible to the one who is harboring it until the conditions are just right and it breaks forth into the open in brazen displays of bitter fruit, ungodly fruit. It may be due to an uncomfortable change, uh, an uncomfortable circumstance that you just don't feel good about or comfortable about. It may be a difficult providence, the circumstance that brings it to fruition, right? It may be a temporal discouragement. Something causes the root of bitterness to spring up. Robert Martin said this, as God's people then, we are to watch carefully. Amen. Dr. Martin says, we are not to await the mature plant before growing alarmed. We are to act decisively. Oftentimes, we don't even know what the plant is until it bears, <laughs> bears fruit. But that's the first time we see it, amen? We should recognize it the second time we see it. <laughs> we are not to await the mature plant before growing alarmed. We should grow alarmed as soon as we see it peak its head above the soil. <laughs> we are to act decisively when the root first springs forth. Left to grow, a root of bitterness will, in the words of Hebrews 12, Trouble the church, bring it into disorder, tumult, and confusion as the root begins to agitate its own ideas of truth and morality. Sounds like Robert Martin has been around a time or two to know what goes on when this happens. Have we not seen that? Eventually, the many are polluted by the unbelief and sin. We are to be a spiritual EPA, <laughs> diligent at pollution control, and we are to take seriously Paul's warning. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That root left to grow will defile many. That root must be eradicated from our own hearts and that root must not be allowed to grow in our midst. It must be eradicated from our midst. John Calvin, it cannot be indeed, but that these roots will ever be found in the church for hypocrites and the ungodly are always mixed in with the good. But when they spring up, they ought to be cut down lest by their growing, they should choke the good seed. At Kadesh Barnea, on the border of the promised land, it was merely 10 among the multitude of Israel that leavened the lump and turned their hearts away from the Lord. 10 among the multitude. They were not rejoicing in hope. Do you see? They were not rejoicing in hope, and so they didn't love their brothers. They didn't love their sisters. The noxious weeds that grew up in the abscess that was left behind defiled many. Brothers and sisters, love rejoices in hope. And rejoicing in hope, it has the capacity to love with a sincere love. Love that is set upon joy, the joy that, is, that lies before us, is a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Why? Because it is a love that the Lord Jesus Christ showed to us for us. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame of the cross for you and I. It is a sincere love that endures. In the words of Romans chapter 12, verse 12, it is a love that is then patient in tribulation, patient through trial, patient through adversity, patient through difficulty. It's a love that rejoices in hope for better days ahead. It's a, it's a, it's a love that looks to the horizon where the Lord Jesus Christ will return. It's a love that will suffer long through difficulty in these days, continuing, in steadfast, continuing steadfastly in prayer, knowing that those days are ahead of us. More on all that from verse 12 next week, if the Lord wills it. All this to say, brothers and sisters, sincere love is hard work. It is hard work. We must be vigilant at it. We must be ever at it. It is a good work. Let us pursue it in faith, amen? Let us 
let us cherish it. <laughs> We're enjoying it now, amen? We're enjoying it now. So let's, let's treasure it <laughs> as the valuable thing that it is. And let's endeavor to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Let, it's, let's endeavor to love one another in this way. Don't let that love be absent from your heart for a brother or a sister. Learn to identify the characteristics that are present there when it is absent and dig that hypocritical love out of your heart. And let's love one another with a pure love. We need to learn by God's grace to abound in this kind of love. And the only way, the only way that we're going to learn that lesson is by going through difficulty when we don't. By going through trial and adversity when we don't love in this way. The Lord has been good to us in teaching us that lesson. We should praise him for it. We should take encouragement from it. We should keep our eyes fixed on the horizon. Amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we pray, God, please, teach us to love this way. Strengthen us, Lord. Let us not become discouraged, but strengthen us, Lord, to persevere, to abound steadfast, always immovable in the work of the Lord. And strengthen us, Lord, to love in this way. Help us to be very, help us to be vigilant uh, to love in this way. Help us to be vigilant when we see or perceive love in our own hearts or love in others that, that doesn't meet this standard. And let us exhort one another in love to exhort one another to follow you in faith, not desiring that any would fall short. Lord, help us, strengthen us to love in this way. Strengthen us, Lord, to persist. Cause us, Lord, to rejoice in the hope that is set before us like the Lord rejoiced for the joy that was set before him. And help us, Lord, in our hearts and minds to consider him lest we become weary and discouraged in our own souls. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We know this is impossible in our own strength. This is impossible in and of ourselves. But we trust the living God who is at work in us to willing to do according to his good pleasure. We trust in you, Lord, knowing that you will complete the work in us that you began. We trust you for it. Thank you, Lord, for these promises. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this exhortation. Help us, Lord, now as we seek to live and love in your body as the church which you have called to yourself, the precious people for your own possession. May it honor you. May it glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. May it magnify your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.